We've got a few minutes. I wonder what questions you may have for um, Mr. Strobel as he um, is challenging us to sort of join the, the great adventure, the yeah. unexpected adventure, um, and uh, in our role in terms of preparing people for ministry. Sure, somebody's got a question. All right. Well, I, very uh, great to meet you, Dr. Strobel, oh, and uh, it's it wonderful Dr. to have you in uh, chapel for <laughs> the lecture. I brought our teenage children. I met we, them. Oh we, no, I, I, I met a class of high school kids that are yeah, it was different, different, different. But okay. anyway, they that we watched uh, the movie about you. It was great, great. and influential. So, uh, I my question is is maybe a simple one. I. I I would like to know if you were, you know, you have an inquisitive mind. You're obviously asking some deep questions. If you could um, place yourself, uh, you know, 30 years ago, 40 years yeah. ago when you wrote your book, what issue would you address? Obviously Christ and, you know, salvation, so yeah. on and so forth. But if you could go back and do it again, maybe even in today's world, what would be the big issue? Uh, issue that you might need to address? You know, I do, uh, I basically do the same thing because the resurrection, you know, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. That's the linchpin. That's the ball game. So I would continue to focus on that um, today. The only book I would change, frankly, um, if I were to do it again, would be The Case for a Creator. Um, and I would change that only to not spend as much time um, debunking neo-Darwinism. Um, I would have spent more time building the affirmative case for um, scientific evidence from God, from cosmology, physics, biochemistry, genetics, and human consciousness. Um, only because um, I, I thought it kind of got in the way of the affirmative case. And once you see that affirmative evidence, it, it, it pretty much deals with the issue of evolution and so forth. So, um, but, I, but by the way, you mentioned the movie. I wanted to mention about that. Um, that movie, you know, one of the things we have to do in apologetics in the future is get creative in how we present it. And, uh, you know, so that's why I'm active on Twitter. There's a lot we can do on simple formats like that, simple platforms. But the movie that they did on my life called The Case for Christ, um, that has had a huge ministry, more so than we ever anticipated. It's gone all around the planet. Um, in New Zealand, a church rented a movie theater, showed it, and 22 people came to faith. The, the, the gospel is in the movie. And um, I, I was in the bathroom at a, um, uh, the men's room at a uh, conference in Des Moines recently. And I ran into the senior pastor, and, and he said, by the way, I use your movie as a personal ministry. I said, what do you mean? He said, when I meet a non-believer, I invite him over to my house for dinner and watch the movie. I said, well, that's great. I said, what's the result then? He said, 27 people have come to faith. It's awesome. So I think sometimes we got to get think outside the box and, and try something new, like a film, like a, which is a dramatic film with actors who have Academy Awards and nominated for Academy Awards and have uh, Emmys and so forth. They had a great cast and a, a solid script, and it was high production values. It wasn't a cringy movie. Um, that's had far more ministry than I, than I ever thought. And I didn't realize so much that cinema is the language of the next generation. It's movies. That's what they want. I don't read books so much. They watch movies. Well, golly, we ought to be making more movies. 
um, you know, and reaching them that way. So anyway, by the way, the movie is still free on Netflix. So when I meet someone and, and uh, I only have a few minutes with them, I said, do you have Netflix? Well, well virtually everybody has Netflix. I said, well, watch this movie, Case for Christ. And um, mm-hmm. um, it's an easy thing to do. And uh, I just, uh, you know, I can't take credit for it because I didn't write it. I, I just, we consulted with it, but it was other people that created that film. But I'm just thrilled that God's used it in, in so many ways. That's fantastic. Any other questions? Dr. Stroh, Lee, and just enjoyed everything that you have had to say so far. Uh, what a pleasure to have you here. Can Thanks. you tell us about your center in Colorado, what you've started, yeah. and what its purpose and what you're doing there? Sure. We just started a new, it's called the Center for Evangelism and Applied Apologetics at Colorado Christian University. Um, Colorado Christian has a long heritage of evangelism and um, conservative theology. And um, so I dreamed about this center probably a decade ago with William Armstrong, former U.S. senator who became the president of Colorado Christian. He went to be with the Lord a few years ago, and now we're finally bringing it to fruition. Um, Our intention with that, I'm going to talk about this on Thursday in chapel, but I think there is a, a missing person in evangelism in America, and that is the evangelism point leader of a local church. I think every church, whether it's a part-time, full-time, or volunteer, ought to have one person at least devoted to evangelism under the direction of the senior pastor who can train 100% of the congregation on how to share their faith naturally and effectively, who can work with the gifted evangelists in the church to maximize their impact, who can put on outreach events and so forth. Usually what churches do, they say, oh, yeah, you're head of evangelism and discipleship, and could you do weddings? And mm-hmm. No, we need people who are devoted to evangelism. So one of the things our center is doing is training those people. We want to identify those people and train them and certify them so that they so the pastors can say this is a certified point leader and um, all I can afford is a part-time job and that's fine for them they they also you know will, will work at another job or whatever it is but we want to train those people so it's one of the things we're doing we have a a, a, a six-stage process uh, for churches becoming more effective in evangelism. And we've been teaching this process for a number of years. We've had PhD students do dissertations on it to test it. It works because it's biblical. And I'm going to talk about it Friday in chapel. And um, so we want to propagate this six-stage process. We want to help educate pastors on how they can increase the evangelistic effectiveness of their, of their church. Um, we want to create these point leaders. Uh, we want to create people, we call it applied apologetics. There are some great universities that are doing wonderful work in, tra- you know, and, and for them to hit the bullseye is that we get one of our students to become a PhD student at Notre Dame in philosophy. It's great, fantastic. We need more people who are in that fray. That's great. That's not our bullseye. We're talking about people being in the fray in the marketplace of ideas. We call it applied apologetics. We want people who are in the fray of of um, local churches and doing radio and, 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 and internet ministry, all kinds of different permutations of how apologetics can be used. So it's, it's, it's apologetics with a practical focus. So we're creating 130 courses um, uh, in evangelism and applied apologetics on four tracks. 
certificate level, an inexpensive degree that people, not a degree, an inexpensive certificate people can get that certifies them as a point leader, uh, but also an undergraduate degree and a master's degree, and then ultimately we have a PhD track. But um, uh, that's kind of what we're working on, and uh, it's all online, so people can take these courses from anywhere. We're working with a team of uh, 12 PhDs who are helping design our courses, and we've, we're actually going to be cutting edge because we're the first university in America to incorporate certain aspects of uh, augmented reality in our courses so that when you take our course, a hologram will appear on your desk and talk to you. Um, I mean, this stuff is unbelievable. Blow your mind. Um, you want to study the uh, Ryland's uh, um, fragment of, you know, of John, the earliest fragment? You know, here it is floating in, in, right in front of your eyes so you can look at it and you can examine it. Mm -hmm. we're, using, we're spending three times what the average university spends on each of our courses to develop them. So we want them to be cutting edge and, and high tech. So we're excited about it. And um, it's kind of a legacy project for me. It's, you know, I've, what am I going to do in the last 10 years of my life? Um, I, I want to leave an impact with people trained and equipped to be salt and light for future generations. So that's our attempt to do that. That does sound exciting. What's that? It does sound like exciting. You it's fun. 130 courses. 130 courses, wow. ultimately, yeah. That's incredible. We launch our first 30 courses next fall. That's incredible. Uh, yes, any, one more question? Yeah, Dr. Lederbach. Sure. Uh, Lederbach, I teach ethics here. Uh, I have two-part question, but yeah. you may want to just get to the second one because the first one's a little longer. But the first one was uh, I teach ethics, and I'm curious of how you're seeing the ethical topics become mm. the, the point of conversation starting in the culture. The second question, so choose either one, uh, because your journalism background on that, as you, as you watch journalism in contemporary culture, yeah. how do you evaluate that from your point of view of what's happening to journalism and journalistic reporting in the U.S.? So well, two very different questions. But Yeah, I tell you, the journalism one of the biggest frustrations of my life um, has been the degeneration of journalism in America. Um, I, I got my undergraduate degree at the University of Missouri, which I think is the best journalism school in the country. It was the first journalism school. And I was taught that no human being is objective, but we should strive for objectivity. When I was legal editor of the Chicago Tribune, I covered a lot of court cases involving ethical issues, well, moral issues, abortion, for instance, and others. Um, uh, so I was very pro-choice. I was very pro-abortion. And um, um, when I would write an article about a court case involving abortion, uh, you could not tell where I stood on that issue. You'd read that article, and guess what? I had both sides quoted. I had the arguments from both sides represented fully. Um, and uh, you would read it and go, I wonder where the writer stands, because I can't tell. Now, that's gone out the window. And, you know, the New York Times, which, you know, back in my day, everybody aspired to work for the New York Times, uh, no longer, because they've pretty much gotten together and said, you know what? Um, Trump is a disaster. And we are morally justified in campaigning against him in our news columns. That is the moral thing to do. We can't pretend that we should be neutral on this. We, we, we should take a stand. And they basically have said that. Now, I don't know how, you know, I'm no Trump fan either, but um, that is a capitulation to um, uh, uh, 
I mean, that, that's just an awful, awful way to build a news organization. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. You know, the First Amendment is the First Amendment because of the importance of freedom of religion, but also freedom of the press. It's the only business that's protected specifically in the Constitution. Why? Because it is the foundation. It is the, it, uh, it's the fifth estate, um, or the fourth estate. It is, um, you know, it's foundational to America that we have a free and a vibrant and, and a um, uh, reliable uh, press. Did you see the headline in the Washington Post when the uh, head of ISIS was killed? where they identified him as the austere spiritual leader in the headline. This is a guy who personally committed rape and murder, and, and you call him in a headline the passing of an austere political spiritual leader. Mm. What? You can't say that this is an evil? I mean, come on. That's an objective reality. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Our democracy, I think, is at a, a crossroads. And um, I don't know what's going to happen. I, I, I don't see any major news organizations um, taking a different approach or saying, oops, we were wrong. Let's go back to the way things used to be. So I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I was going to ask Mr. Stobel, are there any uh, news outlets of historical reputation otherwise that, that you do? Yeah. To yeah, the one that I trust the most and that I go to all the time every day, and I think is closest to that old school of journalism, is the Wall Street Journal. And they cover, yes, they're conservative um, in terms of their uh, editorial page, um, but their news columns are pretty much down the middle. And they will take on topics that the New York Times won't take on because they are conservative. And they see a story that the New York Times doesn't recognize. Um, so you'll see stuff in there that you won't see in the other mainstream media. But I tr uh, uh, Wall Street Journal is about it. So I read it online every day. Um, and I think it's worth subscribing to their things so that you can get full access to what they what they have. That's that's the main one for me. On television I just I just toggle back and forth between CNN and Fox News and say the truth's probably somewhere in the middle. Because <laughs> I mean, it ain't on either one of those. Um, it's just horribly frustrating. Um, I'm glad I'm out of the business because I'd be yeah. probably ostracized uh, and, and accused of having uh, ancient uh, morals and, and uh, an ancient worldview. But we're in trouble as a country if, if we can't trust the media to tell us what's actually happening. I want to go back to Dr. Lederbach's first question. I think this would be a great way for us to end. I wanted to ask this as well. Some of the cultural and moral questions yeah. in our day, what role are they now playing in the apologetic discussion and engaging people on questions yeah, of faith. Yeah, increasingly those are being raised. I mean, I do a talk called The Case for Life, and I raise money for crisis pregnancy centers all around America um, because I was an unwanted pregnancy um, to my dad. And, uh, and also I helped set up an abortion when I was an atheist in college. Mm -hmm. So I talk personally as someone recovering from that and so forth. And um, so I build a case for life uh, in that talk. That's the use of apologetics in a moral issue to say, here are the, here are the, four, the five reasons I give why um, the only, really the only sensible path is a pro-life position. Um, even if you're not sure of it, 
it's a better position to take for a variety of reasons. But um, so there's an example, I think, of apologetics, the affirmative um, teaching of apologetics uh, making an impact in a, in a social issue that's become increasingly hot again um, now that New York is, I mean, some of these laws have been passed are unbelievable. State of Illinois, too, um, just unconscionable. Um, so, um, and I'm working on a book uh, called The Case for Life where I'll deal with um, not just the abortion issue but also um, doctor-assisted suicide and other life issues that are moral issues that also I think are quite open to apologetic um, discussion and, and arguments and reasoning. Um, I tell you, I had the most disturbing phone call a couple of weeks ago. Um, you talk about the impact of secularism and of atheism on our culture and on our mores and, and on our young people. I got a phone call. It was a voicemail. I was up in the Rocky Mountains with Leslie on low vacation, and um, I didn't get it for a day or so after it came in. But a guy said, hi, you don't know me. I'm a Christian. I've read your books. I trust you. Um, my son, this was Wednesday. My son is scheduled to commit suicide on Friday. Uh, it's a physician-assisted suicide in Canada where it's legal. And, um, and, and I said to him, and I said, and he's, not a, he's, he's an atheist. And uh, so I've been reaching out to him, and I said, uh, he's got these questions like, um, oh, I can't trust the Bible, it's too many contradictions. Um, would you be willing to have a conversation with him? If I asked him, um, would you be willing to do that? So I called him back, so of course. Um, uh, I left him a voicemail. By then it was, I didn't get the message till Thursday, so it was the next day. Next voicemail I got is, my son is dead. I, I went to him and I said, I believe there are good answers to these objections that you've been fed by these atheist books and things that you've been reading. Would you be willing to have a phone conversation at this late hour with this guy who was an atheist who investigated this stuff and might be able to give you some answers? And he said, my son looked at me and said, I don't think so. And he died. You talk about the real human tragedy of what's going on in our culture, of this proliferation of atheist books and, and, and secularism, um, where a young man about to leave this world was so brainwashed by this stuff that he didn't think it was worthwhile to, to hear the other side. That's what we're up against. We're, we're up against a real tide of secularism that's engulfing this country. What was the statistic recently that, that um, if I get it right, uh, 30 million young people will leave the Christian faith by the year 2050? Um, I mean, you know, we're in a real crisis situation. And um, we can sugarcoat it and say, yeah, yeah, but, you know, a lot of young people leave the church, but they come back when they get married and they have children. They'll come back. Well, yeah, people are waiting longer to get married these days, and so they're away from the church longer. Number two, um, um, they're leaving the faith at five to six times the historic rate. We've never seen that kind of exodus. And number three, never have we had a proliferation of atheist organizations intent on robbing our young people of their faith. Um, the Secular Student Alliance, which is an umbrella organization for atheist groups, is on 400 high school campuses and college campuses. Um, 
you know, God bless them. They have the right to be, but we need to be there too. <laughs> we need to be presenting the other side. We need to be presenting the affirmative and the, and the defensive side of apologetics. Uh, otherwise, this tide is just going to roll over us. Well, thank you for that challenge. Um, and that challenge has been consistent all day, so we really appreciate you being here. Um, and uh, challenge us to join the unexpected adventure. Yeah. Um, and the adventure really is a rescue mission, isn't it? It is, that's um, true. To proclaim the message of salvation. But nothing's more exciting. No. You just never know. You, you, never, you never know what's going to happen. I mean, and I, you know, anybody who shares their faith on a regular basis has always got these amazing stories to tell. And they're more common than we think they are. And uh, the miracles you see along the way and the life change, the people who never thought would come to faith. Um, I mentioned my Jewish friend Morris, who came to faith as a result of the people serving him during the crisis of the flood and then getting answers to his questions. Um, Everybody had written Morris off. Um, And yet, here we just baptized me, came to faith. And and, um, I, I did a book called The Case for Grace. And it's my favorite book because it's just stories of unlikely candidates for conversion whose lives have been transformed, uh, including one guy who murdered 20,000 people, um, um, the head of the torture center for the Khmer Rouge, who became a Christian, uh, was in prison for genocide and shares his faith with all the guards and all the other prisoners and uh, is alive in Christ. Um, you know, uh, homeless people living in dumpsters who are now Baptist pastors. Um, drug addicts. Um, I had so many stories that were so outrageous of these unlikely people. I, I'm writing the book, and I realize I have to have at least one chapter about a normal person. So I literally sought out a normal person <laughs> and said, you came to faith, tell me about it. And they said, yeah, I still needed Christ. I still needed forgiveness. But I had to have that chapter in there because these stories are so amazing that God is, the gospel still works. Lives are still being saved. Um, you know, lives are being changed. And, um, um, you know, sometimes I think we, it becomes too academic or too uh, theoretical for us when we see these lives in front of us transform. Uh, when I see my friend um, out in Las Vegas who was literally sleeping in dumpsters and uh, a meth addict and a heroin addict and a, and a uh, convicted felon, convicted counterfeiter, convicted burglar, um, starving to death on this, uh, as a homeless person on the streets of Las Vegas. And um, you know what brought him to faith? Talk about an act of compassion. A Christian woman. He went to a church where they had free showers for the homeless. And he's waiting for a shower, waiting uh, for his turn. And this volunteer came in named Michelle and went up to him and looked at him and said, you look like you need a hug. Hmm. And he said... You don't want to hug me, ma'am. I'm a drug addict. You don't want to hug me. I'm a felon. You don't want to hug me. I'm homeless. You don't want to hug me. I haven't had a bath in six months. I stink. And she said, you don't stink to me. And she gave him a hug, and then she looked him in the eye, and she, she said, did you know Jesus loves you? And that was the pivotal moment of his life. And he came to faith, and, and now is a Baptist pastor and has a homeless ministry in Las Vegas. And he called me the other day because he said, you know, all my teeth rotted out when I was a meth addict. And there was a guy in my church who was a uh, dentist. And he said, I'm going to give you a whole mouth of new teeth. So he called me up and said, Lee, you can't believe it. I got 
All these new teeth, the guy gave me free, all these new teeth. He said, when I smile, I, 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 I look like Joel Osteen. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. But I, I just love these stories of, of life change, and, and they're still happening. It's gospel still works, and, and we just, we just got to get out there and, and um, you know, be cultural warriors. Yeah. Well, you've, been, you've uh, challenged us and encouraged us today, equipped us with some tools, ways to think, um, given us some, some uh, tools to, in terms of engaging people. Uh, but you've done something else today, too, and I just want to commend this, is that uh, a real joy and a smile has come on your face when you've talked about conversion. <laughs> yeah. And um, that really challenges us as well.